Amen. Well, within the pages of the New Testament, as we read throughout the New Testament, we see that over and over again, Christianity is compared to a race. But not just any race. This, this is a race that requires endurance. Christianity is not a sprint. It's compared more so to a marathon. Think about it. Running a marathon, it, it takes speed, sure, but that's not, that's not a key component. It does take strategy, but ultimately, more than that, a marathon takes perseverance. If you've ever run a long distance, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When I was in high school, I decided I was going to run cross country. And so for my freshman year, yes, Brent, fellow cross countryer. Well, I can't even consider myself a cross countryer because I only did it for one year. I thought it was going to be a good idea. Uh, I thought it would help me to stay in shape during like the off season because I played soccer. But I quickly realized that staying in shape wasn't going to be enough motivation uh, to run six, seven miles, 10 miles, you know, every day at practice, right? I, I realized during those practices, during that, that one season that uh, I didn't like to run long distances at a slow and steady space or slow and steady pace, uh, just, just staring down like a long straight road. That, that's not the type of running that excites me at all. And I realized it that year. I don't like the feeling of just being in my own zone, by myself, kind of me and my thoughts, just staring off into the distance. Maybe some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, a, a, a long race like that can be, it can be tiring, and it requires perseverance. And for those of you, those of you who are like me, who, who sympathize with my weaknesses when it comes to long races, uh, we need extra grace because that's exactly what Christianity is. It's a long race that's typically taken at a slow and steady, steady pace. It's not a sprint. It's a lifelong marathon. Well, this evening, we're going to look at the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. In our passage here, we see that we are called to run the race of Christianity with endurance. Right? That's the main thrust of the passage. That's the main command here. We run this, this lifelong marathon with perseverance. Now, thankfully, Hebrews doesn't um, leave us without the resources that we need in order to run this race well. As we see in our passage, the author of Hebrews explains how we can run this race as followers of Christ. And we see two specific ways here. That's all we're going to look at, two specific ways in which we can run this race well. First, we must lay aside every hindrance that prevents us from running well. And second, we must look to Christ as the supreme example of our endurance in this race. So let me begin by reading our passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So yes, even though last week we did an entire chapter, tonight we're going to do three verses, um, because there's a lot here. I'm sure you can already sense that. There is a lot here. Kevin came up to me before this started and asked if we were going to do all of chapter 12 today. I said, no, we're going to do the first three verses. Because there's so much to, to dig out of these verses, let's go back to verse 1. Notice how the, the main command comes at the very end of the verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Here's the thrust of the verse. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This this passage here keeps in line with all of what we have seen throughout the book of Hebrews. Remember, over and over again, Hebrews has called us towards perseverance in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1, pay attention lest you drift away. Chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter God's rest. Chapter 4, verse 14, since we have such a great high priest, let us hold fast to our confession. Chapter 6, verse 11, we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Chapter 10, verse 36, you have need for endurance so that you may receive what is promised. The book of Hebrews is, is one steady call to perseverance after another. We as the people of Christ need to persevere. But this race is difficult because it is not a sprint. It is a marathon. It has ups and downs. There are hills in this marathon that we must climb and at times it is difficult. So in order to run this race, we need perseverance. Now, as we look at our passage, we see that everything hinges on this one idea. But as we continue to read the passage, it shows us how we are to run this race with endurance. In chapter 12, verse 1, we see that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Remember, this is a reminder of what we have read in chapter 11 this long list of those who have gone before us in the faith. They went before us in this race. They ran it with endurance. These men and women, they lived by faith up until the end of their, de- or of their life, to the point of death. And like we saw, they weren't perfect, but ultimately what, what categorized each of these individuals was that at the end of their lives, they possessed faith. So now we too are called to run this race with them watching on as we, as we seek to follow Christ. Now we should be encouraged here because we get to learn from their faith, but here we see that they are actually watching us as well. They're watching us with anticipation as we run this race in their wake. And 
having this audience watching on ought to prompt a sense of encouragement. Imagine for a moment you played basketball all of your life, watching someone like Michael Jordan play, and finally you make it to the NBA and you become a great player, and lo and behold, Michael Jordan comes up to watch you. I mean, in one, in one way I, I could see that that would actually prompt you to be maybe a little bit nervous, but at the same time, that is inspiring. Like Michael Jordan is coming to watch you. Abraham now is, is in the stands, essentially, watching you. Next to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and this long string of individuals who have gone before us. So how can we run this race well? Like I said, this passage shows us two different ways to do so. If we want to endure in the faith, here's how we do it. First, we lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. That's the first thing that we do. And the imagery at this point in the passage is, is pretty clear. This is a track and field event of sorts that we are participating in. And so when you're participating in any sort of race, what do you do? You want to eliminate any sort of drag that's going to prohibit you from running well. Those who run, they wear as little as possible is in order to eliminate resistance. Because when you're, when you're running against top athletes, every single ounce matters. In fact, you know, as, as odd as it may sound, in the ancient Greek world the Olympian athletes would compete without any clothes on. And thankfully, we've moved beyond that. (laughs) We've come up with ways to get around that. But still, even today, you'll see they are wearing, athletes are wearing as little as possible when they're running in these races. They're wearing as light of shoes as they can possibly find. And the same can be said of of any sport that that uh, involves a race. I I was in college, and my roommate was a, a swimmer. And he would tell me all of the tricks that they would do as swimmers to eliminate drag. And he would still practice these things. He would shave his legs, he would shave his arms, he would shave his chest, like everything. Like, just so he could eliminate drag while he was in the water. And the way he put it was that when you are racing against top athletes, every single millisecond counts. Every millisecond matters. And so you rid yourself of every bit of resistance that would come between you and the podium. This is what Hebrews is building on. If you want to run a race well, if you want to run the Christian faith well, then you need to lay aside everything that is going to come between you and the finish line. You need to strip away everything that is going to prohibit your success. And so as we see here in verse 1, this means that we lay aside every entangling sin. If you want to run this race well, then you need to lay aside the sin that entangles and trips you up as you pursue Christ. The ESV interprets this phrase, the sin that clings so closely. But if you have an NASB, uh, New American Standard, it interprets this a little bit better, I think. Uh, The sin that easily entangles. I mean, what would be more detrimental to a race than to to try to run while your feet are entangled. Have you ever run a three-legged race before? Is that like silly like yard game that you do where you you tie your leg up to someone else's leg? 
So it's, it's three legs. It's your leg and then your leg combined with someone else's leg and then their free leg. Now, when you hold on to your sin, rather than laying it aside, in essence, you are attempting to run a three-legged race of faith. But here's the problem. You can't expect to make it across the finish line when your partner in the race is adamant to run in the opposite direction. I mean, if you are tied to sin in this race, then you, you and your partner are, are never going to make it to the finish line because you're working in the opposite directions. It's not going to work. It doesn't matter if you're the fastest human on, on earth. Even Usain Bolt will not win this race if his partner is running in the opposite direction. Sin entangles. It prevents you from running this race well. It prevents you from finishing this race. And that's why Jesus calls us to extreme measures in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Those are the words of Jesus himself. So if you are in a three-legged race and your partner happens to be sin, you need to cut your leg off. If you're in a relationship that is causing you to sin, you need to cut it off. Honestly, I do not really care that much about how broken-hearted that may make you feel. I really don't. You can call me cold. I don't really mind because I care more about your soul than your feelings. Break the relationship off. If you have to live a life of celibacy for the kingdom of God. If your phone causes you to sin, put a hammer to the screen. My, my phone helps me stay organized. It helps me keep in touch. It helps me save time. Christ lived a life without the technological benefits of a smartphone. I'm sure you'll be fine. Figure out another way to keep a calendar. Figure out another way to keep in touch with your friends. Figure out another way to keep a checklist. If your friend group is causing you to sin, you may need to block some phone numbers. And that may make you feel lonely and isolated. However, it is better to live a life of loneliness and isolation than than to try to run this race entangled in sin. Look back at verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Notice he says here that we must lay aside every weight So he's not only referring to sin here. He has two things in mind. Two separate phrases are here. He's referring to both sin and the other weights. All of the other weights. This all-encompassing category of any weight that is going to prohibit you from running this race. You must put away every weight that hinders you from pursuing Christ. Ultimately, this is a call to wisdom. At times, there are things that are hitting, hindering you from pursuing Christ. And those things may not be described in the scriptures as, as sins. So maybe you're not living in sin with your boyfriend 
or your girlfriend, but that relationship is not helping you to pursue Christ. Maybe you're not indulging in sin when you use your phone, and yet your phone is still hindering you from your race. I mean, do you find yourself spending hours looking at social media every day? I get it. There's no passage in Scripture that says, Thou shalt not look at my phone for hours on end every day at social media. And yet we need to use wisdom. Is your phone helping you to pursue Christ? Is that app helping you to to, to fight against your, your urge towards covetousness? Is your phone fostering an attitude of jealousy? Well, maybe you need to get rid of it. If it's not helping your walk with Christ, get rid of it. If it's not helping your walk with Christ, then delete the app. Right? That's the call here. It's not just to get rid of the things that hurt. It's the, the call to only pursue things that help you pursue Christ. The same can be said of your time playing video games or watching movies. Is the time that you are spending doing that helping you pursue Christ? I mean, there's no command in Scripture that prohibits you from playing video games for X numbers of hours each day But we have to ask the question, is that time well spent? Are the friends that you have helping you to pursue Christ? Hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying, do you have friends who claim to be Christians? I'm saying, are those friends helping you to pursue Christ? Even if they claim to be a Christian and they're not helping you pursue Christ, then maybe it's not the best friendship for you. When you decide which school you are going to attend, are you even asking the question, is this going to benefit me and my walk towards Christ? Is this decision going to help me run this race with endurance? Please hear me. I'm not saying that you need to attend a Christian school when I say that. I'm not assuming anything like that. Rather, I think we just need to be asking some questions. Is this school even near a gospel-centered church? Is this school near a community of Christians where I can plug in? Sometimes you can go to a Christian school and it's not going to help either of those things. Similarly, when you're choosing a specific career, is that, that job going to help you pursue Christ? Now, there's, there is absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, it's a good thing to work as an accountant or a surgeon. And yet we need to ask the question, is that specific field going to help me? Specifically, is it going to help me pursue Christ? You see, if the only question you are asking is whether or not this thing I'm doing is sin, then you are not asking enough questions. Again, if the only question you are asking is whether or not this thing I am doing is sin, then you are not asking enough questions. Your decisions about relationships, about a career, about a school, they all must consider the reality that this thing that I'm considering may or may not help me pursue Christ. So, if we want to run this race well, we need to begin by laying aside every weight and every sin that entangles so that we can pursue Christ. 
In verse 2, we see something in addition. If you want to run this race well, then yes, you need to strip off everything that's going to hinder that race, but there's more to it. You must also look at those who have provided you an example. Right? You're not going to succeed at any sport without paying attention to the examples who have gone before you. You're not going to be a great basketball player unless you observe the greats who have played the game before you. You need to be a student of the game, right? If you're going to be a great basketball player, you need to study Kobe Bryant's work ethic. You need to study LeBron's devotion to every single aspect of his game. You need to study Curry's dribbling abilities and his shooting abilities. You need to study MJ's uh, resilience. If you want to be a great soccer player, you need to study Pele and Maradona and Ronaldo and Messi. If you want to succeed, you need to look at what the greats have done before you, and you need to imitate them. You know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and we need to recognize that and learn from those who have gone before us. And this is why the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 brought up this entire host of examples who have gone before us. So we look to Abraham, we look to Joseph, and we look to the rest of the faithful who have preceded us. And yet now, as we continue in the passage, we come to the epitome of our examples, the climax of this list, this long list of examples of those who have gone before us. Here is our best example. Look to Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Christ is the king who has already founded and perfected the faith that we are walking in. Right? He is the maverick and the pioneer who has is, who is paved the way before us. He has not only run the race on our behalf, he has won the race on our behalf. He has already achieved our victory through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection and ascension. After he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God as the supreme ruler over all things. He is the perfect high priest who ensures our way into his presence. And this means he is freely distributing all of the resources that we need to run this race well. For example, if you are in Christ, he has given you his spirit. And Ephesians 1 reads that in Christ, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our salvation. Christ is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He has guaranteed our salvation for us. He has given us every resource that we need to pursue Christ. Philippians 1.7, he has begun a good work in us and he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is he who works in you. He is working in us, and we respond by working out the resources he's given us. We look to Christ because he is our source of strength. He is our source of, of encouragement. He is our guarantee that we will f- see the finish line. 
He is both the founder or the source and the perfecter of our faith. In other words, he is the beginning and the end of our faith. And we see here that he is also our example. Yes, he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, and he gives us encouragement and resources to run this race well. But he also provides for us an example so that we can, can look to him and find the strength that we need and the encouragement we need to fight while we're in the trenches against sin. I know sometimes the church, uh, in the church will tell people, hey, you're struggling, you need to look to Christ. And that's true, right? But that is vague and unhelpful if you just leave it there. There's not enough content there to be helpful. If you just tell someone, man, I see you're struggling, you need to look to Christ. That's not enough. We need to be more explicit. Here we see that by looking to Christ, what we are to do is to learn from him. Learn from his example. We need to to let people know what we mean when we say look to Jesus. Here we need to learn from his example. Look to Christ and learn from what he has done. Look, look at what he has accomplished and how he accomplished it. He perfectly obeyed the Father in the most substantial of ways. Right? Unlike the men and women that we discussed last week in chapter 11, Christ never failed as he lived a life of faith. Right? Unlike Abraham, he never sold his wife into slavery twice. Right? Unlike Moses, Christ was not prevented from entering into the promised land. Unlike Joshua, Jesus actually gave his people true rest. Christ never failed in his life of faith. He is an example for us in the way that he lived and in the way that he faced suffering. We see here that he endured the cross. In verse 2, look to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What gave Jesus the strength and the encouragement and the ability to endure the cross? He endured this suffering by pinpointing all of his focus on the joy set before him. He looked past the discomforts. He looked past the displeasures of the cross by focusing on the joy that was yet to come. He looked past the suffering that he would face in this world by placing all of his attention on the joys yet to be revealed. Romans 8.18, Paul says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Clearly, Jesus had this same mindset when he endured the cross. He's focusing on the joy set before him. 2 Corinthians 6.10, As Christians, we are always sorrowful, and yet we are always rejoicing. How? 
How does that even make sense? What in the world are you talking about, Paul? Right, though the experiences of this world may cause tears to stream from your eyes on a regular basis, we have a joyful hope that is secured for us in the heavens. And it implants within us everlasting joy. You know, suffering sometimes, it has the tendency to act like a fog. We suffer, it prevents us from seeing beyond our current circumstances to the light that lies beyond them. All we see is this thick cloud. And yet beyond the fog is the sun. Right? It's that experience when you enter into San Francisco and you go, I, I know it's sunny in Oakland, and yet it feels like it's like it's dark over here. Right? This is weird. Sometimes suffering can can act the same way. You need to see beyond the current suffering that you're facing and and recognize that there is light shining. Right Beyond the, the current circumstances that you are facing right now, there is joy. So often, our discomforts in this world, they prohibit us from looking beyond the next couple of days, the next couple of hours, sometimes even the next couple of minutes, let alone beyond this lifetime into eternity. So we need to learn from Christ who set for us an example by enduring the cross, by setting all of his attention and all of his focus on the joy set before him. You see, when you are tempted to cave into the sins of this world, we need the same focus. When you begin to cave into this desire for immediate pleasure, look to the glory that awaits us when we enter into the presence of God. Right? Christ is better than the immediate pleasures of sin. Christ is worth enduring suffering. Christ is worth the discomfort of uprooting your your family from a first world country and, and moving across the world to live in poverty for the sake of Christ in a third world country. We need to look beyond this world to the joys of heaven. We need to look beyond our current circumstances to the glory that will one day be revealed. You know what weight we need to lay aside so that we can run this race well? We need to lay aside the weight of seeking lasting joy and satisfaction this side of heaven, in this life. We often, don't don't you feel this, we often get so caught up in finding joy here and now we get so caught up in it that we miss the fact that, that the joys of this world they're, they're only supposed to function as a mere shadow of the substance that we'll experience in eternity. Right? True joy, lasting joy awaits us. And yet we dabble in the pleasures of this world thinking that they will ultimately satisfy. They won't. You know, the joys of this world are to function as an appetizer preparing us for the feast that awaits us in God's presence. 
You see, the delicacies of this world are not wrong in and of themselves. But they can become a weight that entangles us when we misuse them. When you begin to think that those appetizers that we experience here are the the main meal, then your joy will dry up in due time. The joys of this world are are meant to prepare us for heaven, not replace it. And yet we so often seek to find all of our satisfaction here and now. So we need to lay aside that weight that says, I need to find joy and satisfaction wholly in this world. So look to Jesus who recognized that often joy is experienced when we endure, dis- endure the discomforts of this world in anticipation of heaven. I know it's uncomfortable to deny ourselves from indulging in sin. I know it's uncomfortable to get rid of your iPhone when it's causing you to stumble. I know it's uncomfortable to remove yourself from a relationship when it is moving you into sin. And yet it is worth it. We must learn from Jesus here, who recognized that it is better to suffer in this world, it is better to face discomforts in this world than to suffer in the one to come. Look to Jesus by placing all of your joy and all of your hope in heaven rather than in this world. Notice what we also see here. We can learn from Christ by despising the shame. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I think this is a pair. He has two pairs going on here. The, The joy set before him enabled him to suffer. And now we have another pair. He endured the shame, and yet now he is seated at the right hand of God in honor and in glory. Christ experienced the shame of the cross, knowing that he would one day be seated at the right hand of God. You know, he experienced horrendous public humiliation. He suffered the criminal's death on a cross. And he did so willingly, knowing that he would be abused and mocked by his own creation. And yet, the shame and the humiliation that he experienced weren't the end of the story. In fulfillment of Psalm 110, Christ is now seated at the right hand of God. Now he is experiencing honor and glory. And so while there was shame in the cross, now he is exalted at the right hand of the throne of majesty. I mean, we too can find confidence in this same reality. the, The truth is, is that Christ took upon himself the shame of judgment so that you and I would never have to face the same fate. If you are in Christ, you will not face eternal shame. Instead, you will receive honor. 
this morning I was, I was reading Psalm 25. It's just the next chapter in, in the book of Psalms as I'm reading through Psalms. And, and I came across this plea from David. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Here God, or, or, or David is pleading with God. He does not want to experience the shame of defeat from his enemies. You know, today we feel a similar thing. We experience in our culture, even in this day, shame from those who surround us. Those who are enemies of our faith do seek to shame us. They seek to make us look like ignorant buffoons and fools. And sometimes they are successful of making us look that way. We are made to look like fools. We are made to look like shameful. Or uh, we are made to look shameful. But Hebrews recognizes this reality. We as followers of Christ, we ought to look, look to Christ as our example. He ran directly into the shame of this world knowing that there was glory to be revealed on the other side. He knew that he, he could experience the shame here, this side of heaven, knowing that honor awaited him. And now, in Christ, we get to experience the same thing. Though we may be shamed, though people may come around us and try to humiliate us as we seek to follow Christ, as we seek to, to live in, in contrast with the way of the world, one day we, we will enter into God's presence and be bestowed with honor. Certainly, we will be mocked. Certainly, we will be shamed. And yet, like Christ, we can take that, sh- that shame to the chin, knowing that honor and glory awaits. We can look at the temporary humiliation that is coming our way from our peers, knowing that ultimately, honor will come to us from our Creator. Again, let us put up with the temporary humiliation that comes from our peers because there there is ultimately honor that is awaiting us that will come to us from our Creator who cares what our peers have to say. Our God is going to bestow honor on us in Christ. Glory awaits those who run this race with endurance. And so we need by, by any means possible, to find endurance. Which leads us to verse 3 in chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Here's the answer to endurance. Here's how we endure. Looking to Christ. Considering Jesus. He grants us the strength we need to overcome our weariness. He helps us to overcome a a faint-hearted demeanor. You know, when we begin to think that we are alone in this struggle, it leaves us helpless and hopeless. 
I have conversations with people on a regular basis who have this perspective that they have been dealt the worst hand in life. They are self-consumed. They cannot look beyond themselves at the realities of the world and they just come out, woe is me, my life is horrible. I have been dealt the worst hand possible by God. And you know what happens when you have that attitude? You become weary very quickly. If you view your difficult circumstances as though you are the only one on the planet earth who has ever faced such circumstances and such hardships, you are going to break. Your perseverance is going to come up dry. If you think that your temptations are worse than anyone else's, then you are going to become weary. That's because you feel like there's no hope. No one has ever faced anything as bad as I have. No one has ever faced a situation as wrought as mine. And yet 1 Corinthians 10.13 speaks directly against this reality. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you experience temptations all the time that that may be very difficult, but you are not alone. No temptation that you face is uncommon to man. What you are experiencing is not unique to you. The difficulties that you are facing, the suffering that you are coming in contact with, it's not unique to you. Others have gone before us. Others have suffered too, and they have persevered. That gives us hope. There is a way out of this. There is an opportunity to find strength. And most importantly, Christ has gone before us. He has endured suffering. He has endured temptation. And so let's consider Christ. Let's look to Jesus when we are faced with trials, when we are faced with difficult circumstances. Because let me assure you, he has been through worse trials than you have ever dreamt of. Christ has been through worse temptations than anyone in this room. I guarantee you, the devil came straight to Christ. And when you continue to resist, the temptations just keep coming and you begin to feel the full blow of that temptation. The longer you persevere, the heavier the temptation comes until eventually it begins to to weigh. So Christ, he never gave up once. He has been through much harder temptation than anyone in this room. So we can look to him for strength. He endured and he is here to help you. He has given you his spirit to give you the strength you need to get through those difficult times. He is here to to help you lay aside every weight. He is here to help you lay aside every sin that entangles so that you can run well. He has gone before you as the founder and the perfecter of faith so that you can run this race with endurance. And so I just encourage you, look to Christ because as you look to him, you will find strength from both his example and his work on your behalf so that you can run this race well. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are in desperate need of endurance. And we praise you that we find it in your son.